This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. February 9th of 2004, 21-year-old UMass student Maura Murray drove from her dorm in Amherst, Massachusetts to the White Mountains of New Hampshire. At approximately 7.27 p.m., Maura spun out her 1996 Saturn on a hairpin turn on Route 112 in North Haverhill. There has never been a credible sighting of Maura since. Maura is 5 foot 7 inches tall. She weighs 120 pounds, and she has brown hair and hazel eyes. If you have any information regarding Mora's disappearance, please submit it to us, the Murray family through their Facebook page, or the New Hampshire State Police Cold Case Unit. This is Missing Mora Murray. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I'm Tim here today with Lance in the Crawl Space Studios in Wormtown. Lance, how are you today? I'm doing very well. How are you today? I'm doing well. And for this episode, Lance, we have our friends, Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott from the hit podcast, LA Not So Confidential. Of course, a new podcast on the Crawl Space Media Network. That is correct. You can check out the uh, new shows that we have going on at crawlspace-media.com. The new shows and and new uh, events and announcements uh, are listed there. And Dr. Shiloh and Dr. Scott, while I'm immediately intimidated by people with PhDs and people who even call themselves doctors, these are not intimidating people. They're very easygoing. The interview was really fun. And they have a lot of knowledge about everything they do. And you have to trust them because they are doctors. That's good, Lance. That's exactly right. They did yell at me one time, though, in Chicago, but uh, I won't bring it up here. So uh, check out the show L.A. You Not So... You just kind of brought it up. 
Well, let, I'll just move on because uh, it, it's a good interview and uh, they're good people, um, except for that one time in Chicago. And I hope you like their show. Please subscribe to that. There are links in the show notes. And so this episode, Lance, specifically is about people who disappear on purpose. Which is a really fascinating, I don't know if you'd call it a phenomenon, but it's a really fascinating uh, uh, topic because you have to identify the factors that go into each one of those specifically. You know, no one goes uh, missing on purpose for the exact same reason. Okay, so I hope you enjoy the episode and check out LA Not So Confidential. Links in the show notes. Thanks a lot for listening. And you can also swing on over to L.A. Not So Confidential's website. That is www.la-not-so-confidential.com. That's a dash in between all those words, .com. Welcome back to the Missing Maura Murray podcast, Doctors Shiloh and Scott of the L.A. Not-So-Confidential podcast. How are you tonight? We're great. We're doing well. Thank you. Thanks for having us back. Thanks for coming back. It's uh, it's great to meet you again and talk to you again. And you're, you're on the Crawl Space Network. This is very exciting. It is. We really need to make our way to Boston so we can do this live together. In the same room. I, I would love it. Are we talking? Let's. Are, did we just schedule a live show? Are we doing a live <laughs> show somewhere in Boston? Okay, I don't know about live, but you know where we can all sit down together because that didn't happen. That is true. Yes, I know. Yeah, we're missing the opportunity. Yeah, next week will be the the missed opportunity. Unfortunately, yes, the American Crime Festival that uh, that didn't happen this November eighth, uh, ninth, and tenth in Wildwood, New Jersey. My goodness, it's like not even two minutes in. We just we we've already breached that topic. <laughs> eh, why not? The good doctors were going to join us there. They were going to do a presentation with Sarah Turney about her missing sister Alyssa Turney, and it was going to be moderated by that snappy jacket wearing John Lorden. That son of a bitch. <laughs> it was really going to be uh, an excellent um, panel discussion presentation, uh, but of course it didn't happen because the American Crime Festival is not happening uh, this year, and we are not affiliated with the American Crime Festival if they're doing anything in the future. Um, but what a bummer, And but thank you guys so much for being a part of it and uh, really, well, buying plane tickets and just like planning things and things like that. So I guess my question is your thoughts on Alyssa Turney's disappearance. I know you had spoken with with Sarah a bit, so I'm curious your thoughts on on that case, and um, maybe that's something we revisit, or or you guys can do something with her or something. I would just hate for that to be a missed opportunity. Yeah, we're still trying to find some platform to do something with her because it is just, again, one of those cases that is so interesting and so disturbing. I mean, you you know, with Maura Murray, you have just kind of this empty feeling with it because you don't have a lot. And with Alyssa's case, you just have so many disturbing factors with her father. And it's really something I think we can offer some insight to into just maybe what was going on there, but we definitely plan on doing something with her in the future. Yeah, there's, I, I agree with Shyla and we're, 
you know, we've had great, uh, you know, e-conversations with her and she's still interested in, in working with us, which I think is wonderful. Um, and this is a particular case, as Shiloh was saying, where there's so much for us to work with. The descriptions of her father's behaviors, you know, that's all we need to start forming sort of a, a, a three-dimensional profile for our listeners and to maybe comment on, you know, some of the more subtle behaviors um, that maybe people didn't pick up on, which is kind of hard to wrap your mind around us because he's such a enormous, volatile character. You think you've heard and seen all of it. And I think there's more that we can add to the picture. Yeah. So what do you, what do you mean when you say that there's so much to work with? I mean, I know you just said you know, that there's uh, every, everything that he's done and, and, it it's sort of like one 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 day a, a new piece of information comes out and and or a new video comes out of him you know sitting outside of where Alyssa uh worked uh do you, do you have like an official i guess diagnosis of of what this person's like even if he what isn't responsible for something bad happening to her so this is where you know, we have to take a step back and say, ethically, what what are we doing here by offering commentary? And we would never diagnose nor pretend as if we can do a comprehensive evaluation on someone that is not sitting in front of us in a room with confidentiality in place based on the circumstances, or able to really talk to this person, observe them ourselves, and then have at the end of that an assessment that produces a diagnosis. So that you'll you'll hear when we talk in our episodes or when we're at um, a live event like True Crime uh, Podcast Festival when we we're talking about Mary Kay Letourneau, we're talking about traits that that person has that look similar to disorders that we're familiar with. But you're never going to hear us come out and say this is what they our diagnosis is of them because that would just be completely out of our scope of what our role is as well as unethical. So having said that, um, to kind of answer your, the first half of your question, the fact that there is so much video and audio of Sarah's dad, I mean, it's a gold mine because you usually don't have that in a case. Yeah. So there's a lot that we can look at and say, what is going on here? And, and what Scott and I do, especially with the fact that we've worked with sexual offenders um, and some particular types of incest offenders is saying mm, that behavior really mimics what we see in this population. But of course, we would never come out and say it exactly about um, Mr. Turney. Right, because you've never you've never met him and you've never had uh, like an official, uh, uh, I guess, session with him. So it, are you concerned that all of the information that's put out about him is something that is skewed to make him look bad? Is that something that you might take into consideration? The way I would respond to that is, you know, in the podcast, uh, I'm sorry, I'm sort of blanking on the host's name. Um, Are you talking about missing? Octavia Zavala yeah. of Missing Alyssa? I, I think that really she does. I, I, I was impressed by her, uh, her attempts to, to do an interview and to have a genuine conversation with him. And, but, you know, in the, in the end, how it benefits the work that Shiloh and I do is basically 
nobody's editing anything. He, the guy's just talking and he really enjoys hearing himself talk. And over a lo- you know, over a long period of time, you get to compare a lot of stories that start to contradict each other. And in those contradictions, people, they exhibit a behavior called leakage where they start telling on themselves and they start telling on themselves about their cognitive process, their intellectual process and their emotional process. And I don't, I mean, you know, I I absolutely, if someone was nefarious and they wanted to edit all of those interviews and make him look bad, I, I think he's actually kind of doing a great job himself. You know, he's, he's giving us, like I was saying, he's giving us a lot to work with. So when you mention that leakage, is that almost a direct connection to what his ego is? I guess the way I would be more direct in uh, defining leakage is we use the term a lot in certain um, certain types of threat assessment and risk evaluation. And basically, leakage is a way of telling on yourself whether you're aware that you're doing it consciously or not, or whether it is volitionally motivated or not people leak because there's so much emotion that is that their their psyche is trying to contain so it's not really about ego i mean that's sort of another domain in how we talk about identity development but leakage um gives us a lot of information you'll hear law enforcement use it when they talk about how they interrogate people uh, and and do interviews is you're always looking for those moments where people tell on themselves. Okay, so you're almost talking about like an overload of information, not so much that this person secretly or subconsciously wants the world to know that they committed this crime and got away with it. You're talking about just simply an overload of information that they can't help but uh, release. Well, I'd say it's actually both of those things. I mean, those those two things are not mutually exclusive. Gotcha. And uh, the approach that that you're talking about taking with uh, Michael Turney, uh, Sarah, and Alyssa's father um, in sort of examining the case and him as a person, is that typical of your approach? Like, is that the forensic psychology approach? No, this this is something that we're applying our training and our experience to in you know, even though these are very real occurrences in the real world to real people, we're applying these to a scenario that people are consuming for entertainment. Um, so this this is not similar to what we do on a day-by-day basis. Um, in very rare cases, um, for me at least, and Scott, you can talk if this is different for you and your unit that you work in, um, but I might, since I'm employed by a law enforcement agency, I may be asked to do um, a case-specific consultation, which means if a homicide detective or a sex crimes detective says, hey, we're kind of running out of leads on this case. Can you take a look at it, Doc, and give us some thoughts? Um, that would be through whatever they have officially, police files, interviews, audio, video. You know, they, they pretty much open the complete case file to me. Um, And then I could give them a little bit of information from my background. So like with Michael Turney, which really sort of piques my interest is that um, there's a lot of factors present from what I have heard and seen so far. And I have not seen everything. I think there would actually be more to back this up once I see it. But 
that looks like types of incest offenders or intrafamilial offenders who lose a spouse and then end up grooming the older sibling to then become their partner and replace them. Um, And so that's sort of what I would come to the table with and apply in this case is, okay, I have this background knowledge from working with these types of offenders. Um, Here's what I'm seeing in this case that is similar, but it's, so it, it, you know, I'm thinking of it in the platform that we were going to do it in in a live show. Um, And even that obviously is very different. We're not doing our work live on stage for someone. Um, But there's, there's differences and similarities. So what you're, what you're saying is the, I'm, I'm trying to unpack this all in my head right now. What you're saying is that from your previous experience and your training, what you've seen in Michael Turney's behavior is that he, I feel weird even saying it, he is trying to replace what he got from his wife with his daughter or stepdaughter. Um, there, There's similarities that I'm seeing at this point. Um, and it, certainly the way that that happens is, not necessarily cold and calculated. It can be due to other stressors going on. And he may have a myriad of other things happening psychologically as well that can contribute to it. Um, but yes, at, at this point, I'm, I'm seeing similarities to offenders. And, you know, just to, to piggyback on what Shiloh is saying, in that particular behavior, you know, I, I'm a psychologist, but I'm also a, a marriage and family therapist. And I'm the majority of my training and approach to working with families and couples is what we call a family systems uh, model, where you kind of look at as the the family interacting with each other is what we call a psycho-cybernetic model. And each part of that system is dependent on the others. And if something happens to one part of the system, the entire system will naturally try and do anything to replace or restore that missing part. So to a normal extent, it would be completely normal if, you know, there's a nuclear family and let, let me just, let me shake it up and reverse it a little bit. Let's say there's a nuclear family of mom, dad, and, you know, two kids, male, female with an older, like a young teenage male. Um, dad passes away, um, there are stressors in the family, and maybe there are cultural aspects that really emphasize uh, patriarchy and the role of men and machismo in that system. It would not be unlikely that the system would then try and force on the teenage male the roles of an adult male, sort of like what we say you know, colloquially as like, well, you're the man of the family now. But what can also happen is there can be a diffusion of relationships where the mother in that relationship could come to be in an ersatz marriage relationship with her son. Now, I'm not saying it becomes a sexual relationship, but I'm talking about he becomes her emotional husband because she pulls him into that dynamic, which is really unhealthy because that keeps, you know, the young man from, from individuating and developing on his own. And it also stunts the mother's growth. And it, it, you know, once again, it's a systemic model and it can affect everybody in a negative sense. But as a therapist, we can insert ourselves into that model and we can redirect and we can 
we can reconstruct and put it into a more healthy configuration. What Shiloh's talking about is when it goes completely awry because one of the people in that system is, is really wired differently. Does that express it well enough, Shiloh? Yeah, yeah. I, I'm glad you made the distinction that it doesn't need to turn sexual necessarily. Um, but when it does, when, when what you described does, um, a lot of times it is with non-biological children, like is in this case that we're talking about. Having said all that, it doesn't mean that they killed her. <laughs> you know, we're just kind of looking at what what is going on um, family systems wise, looking at um, risk factors and red flags with people who uh, offend sexually and especially within the family. Um, so, yeah, I, I think there's just a lot of interesting points to the case that we probably once we have access to video and audio of just daily happenings in that family um, that we would just have more information. Yeah. So what you're saying essentially is that when you have a family unit and one of those family members, especially if it's the, um, you know, the mother or the father, one of those units is lost, then there's going to be some natural uh, uh, longing or some natural like hole that needs to be filled. Uh, because of that loss. And if you have these other contributing factors, like I think we know Michael Turney might have had, then then you have to just add in all of those other things. Like what could he, what could somebody in this position with all of those factors have on top of it be capable of? Correct. Yeah, correct. I, I That's exactly sort of what we're saying in long form. It's just about, you know, in, in the best case scenario, the surviving parent is able to recognize like, okay, I'm on my own now. And, you know, the, the power dynamic is going to shift and all the roles are going to shift, but I'm not going to parentify my children. I'm not going to allow them to feel that they have adult responsibilities in this. And, right, you know, I mean, one of the, some of the things that came across in Missing Alyssa that were just so tragic was just about how, you know, she's described as just trying so hard, you know, to meet the demands and keep bending and keep bending. And, you know, he keeps changing the rules of the game. And what makes it particularly poignant is how all of her peers describe her at work, you know, when she was away from her dad, that she just blossomed, you know, that she was a a competent worker and, you know, admired and liked and had a great sense of humor. And then she had to sort of just shift into this other role whenever he was around. What do you mean by changing the game? I'm on my second run through of all the episodes. And one of the things that pops out for me is that he just kept having all these rules and there was so much monitoring and so much gaslighting of, you know, trying to convince her that she was developmentally disabled or had learning disabilities, you know, none of which were evidenced. And it, you know, they, they're on one hand, some of the ways she's described is that she was, you know, somewhat rebellious. And yet there are other descriptions where she was just trying to be a kid that pleased the only parent that she had left. You know, she would put up with some of this outlandish behavior, but it's almost like she was having to not necessarily what we call a uh, code switch, but she would have to 
make identity shifts just for survival. You know, she thrived in the work environment and did pretty well in school, except when she was forced into these, you know, classes away from her peers. But then, you know, people are commenting on how she shifted when they saw her around her dad. But once again, it's, I mean, the game changing metaphor I was using is he just seems to be in my recollection that he just kept moving the goalposts all the time. Not to keep going on this, but it's so fascinating. I know it is. It is. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, it's a tragic case. Um, well, I really look forward to hearing what you and Sarah uh, come up with. Um, let us know how we can help or promote um, some kind of combo of, of uh, heads together for, for that. We'd love to uh, be a part of that in any way we can. Okay, so let's pivot now to um, people who disappear on purpose. And this was something that uh, we intended to get around to talking about the first time we spoke on uh, these very airwaves. Um, but uh, as, as it just happened, um, time just ticks away and, uh, and we, we talk and we talk and it's so fascinating, all of this stuff. And so that's why. But we would love to hear some some research that you've done into this i was talking to shiloh earlier uh as we were sort of you know talking about what our approach was going to be and who was going to cover what and i did a deep dive into what information was available which is a a combination of some statistical research and and some really good just sort of listicle articles that um, pick out particular examples. And the reason that even sort of the pop journalism versions of this are so important is that they give us a broad overview of the categories of people that disappear. And you, you start to see some trends, or at least I'm just right now in this overview, I'm starting to see some definite trends between men and women. And then the subcategories in men as to why they intentionally disappear. I mean, one of the things that's interesting to me that I guess you would know it, but you don't know that you know it or you don't realize that it's not against the law. You know, it's not against the law in the U.S. and it's not against the law in, in Europe. I mean, certainly if you if you commit a crime in the pursuit of disappearing, you know, if you commit fraud or you take on another identity and by taking on another identity, commit fraud, then you're, you know, you're liable and you you could um, pay the consequences for that. However, you know, it's not against the law to just say, yeah, I'm done. I'm not going to talk to my family anymore. I'm, I'm out of here. Yeah, I think I, I, I just want to say one quick thing here. I, I think that uh, that's one thing that we had uh, a, a it, gave us a surprise when we started doing our coverage on Maura Murray and how a lot of people were talking about her case being an open investigation and and the word crime and criminal and all this, was, especially in the early days, that was being thrown out there. But when you look at it, there's no crime that actually happened in that case. And and that's a really interesting... I mean, the only crime that, that happened there was that she abandoned a vehicle, I guess, for the most part. So uh, it, it's reassuring to hear you say that uh as well that you know there there is no crime that actually happens what do you do when you find a abandoned vehicle on the side of the road right you know there's you're really not cre like committing a crime at this point right you're not but in in, in mara's case you do you extrapolate like as compared to most of the information we have from interviews of people who have come back is 
you know, when they're found, you, you get the reasoning for it. And with Mara, like Shiloh was saying earlier, we just don't have enough information. You know, it's not, it's, it's different from other cases in that there is no, like you said, there is no evidence of a crime, but it just leaves this hole with no information. So we, we don't know what to do with it. I mean, it, it disturbs us, I think, on an emotional level when we look at cases like this. This is one of those areas of the criminal justice system and investigation that I think is so interesting because there, there is no crime. And so what is the duty of a law enforcement agency to invest, investigate someone who's missing? And, and I think I, I love that you made that point, Scott, because I think it's kind of blows people's minds when you stop and think about it, just kind of like like suicide. There is no there's no law that says we have to keep people from killing themselves. There's no law that's saying if a police agency doesn't respond to a call of someone who's threatening suicide, that they're going to be held liable. People are allowed to kill themselves. Um, do they do it? Are there, you know, do they make every attempt possible? Of course. Um, and some of that is changing and how the way law enforcement is responding to that. Just now we're starting to see that, especially with um, suicide by cop type calls that are putting law enforcement officers in danger. But with missing persons, it's, you know, it, it's a very interesting investigation because technically there is no crime. So what is the duty to investigate it? And um, I think uh, the intentional missing or volitional missing are probably uh, we just don't have the data. You know, we don't we don't know what we don't know. So we don't know what percentage of people go missing intentionally. And that's the frustration. Shiloh's hitting on something that's so important is because we don't have solid data because uh, a lot of the data that that we do have to work with comes from Great Britain. Um, including, uh, you, you know, other areas of the United Kingdom, like Ireland. Ireland has like a, a phenomenally large amount of people that just go intentionally missing. Um, and interestingly, not to escape uh, financial burdens or anything. It's just there's something in the culture where a percentage of them just say, yeah, I'm out of here. And, you know, they can travel freely within the UK and it's it's easy for them to sort of reinvent themselves. But when we're looking at some of the stats that we do have, um, and this is from The Guardian, um, sort of quoting from Britain's National Crime Agency, it shows that about 91% of most police reported missing persons are closed within 48 hours. So that's that's significant right there, that the vast majority of people that go missing, those cases are closed for whatever reason within 48 hours. But then according to the LA Police Department, that has some great stats on this, about 80% or all 80% of all reported missing persons are found or voluntarily returned within 48 to 72 hours. So that's actually pretty significantly, I mean, 80 to 91% is, is kind of different. And, um, but then again, we're also talking about Southern California as a large metropolitan area. And then, you know, just reminding ourselves that not all missing adults or not all missing persons are the victims of either murders or kidnapping or some, uh, some criminal act. Um, but the, when looking at some of the reasons, the things that I found really interesting is that, you know, some of the reasons that people can go missing, they can, it can have to do with mental illness. And I think we'll see, you know, when we broaden our term or when we broaden that definition of mental illness, when people have, you know, sudden onset of overwhelming stressors, that, 
you know, that in itself is a mental illness and can affect certain individuals to sort of to, to walk away from any situation. But then there's also a good percentage that's based on miscommunication, you know, where family members are just not communicating with each other and people disappear because they haven't made it clear what the plans were. And um, another thing, when we get into lines of gender, we talk about, you know, a lot of women have to disappear because of domestic violence. And if they have successfully disappeared because they're escaping intimate partner violence, the and if the only person who's reporting on it is their partner, well, then the partner is not going to be reporting that there was violence in the relationship, right? So we don't have a lot of stats in that way because there is a great network across the world of safe houses for women to escape to um, where they are very good at helping them disappear. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Kickoff for Super Bowl 34. The Titans Rams 2000 Super Bowl, an instant classic. Hours after the game, two men were stabbed in the street, accused of being in the middle, the greatest linebacker in NFL history. Ray Lewis and two friends are charged with murder. The nation's eyes were glued to their televisions. The trial concluded and the verdicts came back. Not guilty. What you can learn from all this is that big cases make for big mistakes. Look what happened to O.J. Simpson. And look what happened to Ray Lewis. Lewis went on to have a Hall of Fame career. But questions around that night in Atlanta still remain. So what do you think they're hiding? They know what happened. They know exactly what happened. After 20 years, it's time to get to the bottom line truth. From Tenderfoot TV, I'm Tim Livingston, and this is The Raven. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For ad-free listening and early access, subscribe to Tenderfoot Plus on tenderfootplus.com. Sometime in the early 80s, REO Speedwagon's airplane made an unannounced middle-of-the-night landing. This is my friend Kyle McLaughlin, the star of Twin Peaks. And he's telling me about how he discovered a real-life Twin Peaks in rural North Carolina, not far from where he filmed Blue Velvet. What was on the plane was copious amounts of drugs coming in from South America. Supposedly, Pablo Escobar went looking for other spots, quiet, out-of-the-way places to bring in his cocaine. My name is Joshua Davis, and I'm an investigative reporter. Kyle and I talk all the time about the strange things we come across, but nothing was quite as strange as what we found in Varnumtown, North Carolina. There's crooked cops, brother against brother. Everyone's got a story to tell, but does the truth even exist? Welcome to Varnumtown. Varnumtown is available wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, Canada, a vast, idyllic land filled with beavers, loons, lumberjacks, and polite, friendly folks. We have those things for sure, but there's a darker side to the Great White North, full of mystery, crime, the paranormal, and dark history. 
Join me, Mike Brown, and co-host Matthew Stockton every Monday for the Dark Poutine Podcast as we tell dark stories from north of the 49th parallel with the Ottawa game covering more international cases. You can listen to Dark Poutine for free wherever you find your favorite podcast. Thanks to our sponsors, and now we're back to the program. So um, when we look at a, a growing group of missing people that you'll see in the news more and more often is people with dementia. And that tends to happen um, more and more frequently in large urban areas where um, there's just not as much of a social network uh, or social support network as there is maybe in sort of suburban or rural areas for the aged. Um, that's, and that, which is, really sad. And I hope that we can get some legislation in place to address that. But what I found was that when you look at why people disappear, both men and women that are later interviewed, describe it as they just couldn't see a way out. However, what's different is, is that the majority of the men could not see a way out of their financial problems. And then if you look further into the examples of those men that had the financial problems, they're actually sort of minimizing what their financial problems are. Their financial problems were brought on usually by either gambling, bad investments or embezzlement. I mean, it's just amazing over and over again, these guys that are faking their debts are because they really, really got themselves into financial, just a, a terrible morass. It's not so much uh, the case in the women's situation where they needed to get out of there for their own safety. They felt like they were in danger. You have these men who have sort of played loose and fast by the rules, and now they're in trouble, and it's to protect themselves. Right. And then what you also see in the vast majority of the men in that situation is the further subcategory of men who had what we call a secondary gain planned. It was not only to escape their financial problems, but also to have a payout on the back end. So you're seeing a number of these guys that had life insurance policies that they were then going to have a child cash out and they were going to hide out for 10, 15, 20 years. So this is premeditated? Yes, that's what I'm talking about, is a lot of them are premeditated in these examples. And those are the ones, it's interesting because so many of them get caught. You know, it's just especially, I think Shiloh had some really good data on this. On how It's just, you know, this is not like it was in the 80s. You know, it, it is really hard to disappear now. There's a really great Wired article that, highlights a case study of a guy that tried to do exactly what you're talking about and, and takes you through the investigation takes you through his mindset. But his plan was he basically was going to fake his death and he did it essentially right in front of his family, which was kind of cool to pull off that part. And then they weren't in on it, but a year later he was going to recontact his wife, basically apologize, <laughs> say, Hey, I'm still alive but you collected this money, um, let's go start over. Well, within two months, he couldn't take it anymore and he reached out to her. So, you know, it it's really interesting to look at sort of the psyche or the mindset for someone that could really follow through with this. And, you know, if I had to sort of build a profile off of the data that we found, it's not going to be necessarily the person doing it out of complete desperation like Scott's talking about, where they 
you know, don't see a way out and they have to come up with this plan. I mean, that really mimics people with suicidal ideation, which I'm sure you're going to touch on later, Scott. But you want someone, if you want to be successful at this, you want to have a little bit of a taste for risk, the ability to think and act pretty quickly and on the fly, and have that strong resistance to reconnect with people or your past. And those are some pretty foolproof traits to have if you're going to be successful at this. And that that's what I saw in a lot of the case studies was that if they had tried to plan this out in order to um, reconnect with family later, even if they were in on it to collect insurance money, that they really couldn't wait it out. Now, why do you think that they can't wait it out? Is it because they they get impatient about it? Or do you think that they genuinely miss the company of who whoever they've left? Yeah, I think that there's a differentiation there. That's like a further subcategory. What Shiloh's talking about is those that really, you know, regardless of the financial uh, situation they created for themselves, they do have an emotional connection to, you know, intimates and family members. And those are the ones that aren't going to be able to hold on for whatever the amount of time it is, if it's, if it's years. But that those are in stark, stark contrast to some of the more successful men who have disappeared that clearly have what we would consider to be some antisocial personality disorder traits that don't have any connection to their family. I mean, there's a guy, a couple of famous cases, one Arthur Jones out of Chicago in 1979. He was a father of three, had a very lucrative job. Um, uh, I'm not sure if it was on the stock exchange, but, you know, big job in Chicago, very well paying. And, you know, he disappeared, you know, father of three, he had enormous gambling debts, another, just enormous gambling debts. And he was found 20, 27 years later, no, 30 years later, living under another name because he just wanted, when he was asked why, he just said, oh, I just wanted a fresh start. And now also he had a stream, a string of other crimes that he had committed that were all money based while under this AKA. So this is somebody that, like, in contrast to what Shiloh is giving his example, is someone that does not feel, you know, a, an intimate or an empathic connection to family members. Um, Richard Hoagland in 1993, he disappeared for 27 years. He was on the run from the law regarding uh, embezzlement as well. But then in contrast to, to both of these, you know, uh, being connected to family versus not being connected to family. There was a 53 year old Colorado man named Paul Kitterman and he was with his family at a Broncos game and he just vanished during halftime, just disappeared and was found later a hundred miles away and sort of almost not really in a fugue state, but clearly suffering from severe mood disorder, such as a depressive disorder and he, all he could say to the police that found him was that, you know, yeah, I just got tired of football. So, you know, when we look at the three major category, well, there, no, there's four major categories, but I think that three are the most important. So there's forced disappearance, obviously, which where the person is uh, a victim of foul play. But then there's the unintentional absence that we talked about, you know, which might have as a, a stemming off of uh, dementia or other mental health problems or an accident or, you know, I guess what we'd call a misadventure. And then there's drifted, which is those who just kind of lost contact and they have sort of a transient lifestyle. And without, 
you know, getting too clinical or putting a diagnosis on that, you know, that I think the the drifter category is going to include people with mental health issues or emotional problems because sort of running, we all dream of running away from some of our biggest responsibilities that are overwhelming. But for the most part, we, you know, get a good night's sleep or we reach out to friends or we take care of ourselves and we kind of figure out how to to get through it, which way sort of is a, a short, a long way of describing what we call resiliency. And this drifter category seems to be people that don't really have a lot of resiliency because they just move from situation to situation. And all three of those are in complete contrast to the main, you know, intentional that we're talking about, which is decided, you know, person that relationship is broken down, they're escaping personal problems. And I'm so sorry, somebody has their Oh, no up. worries. And you, you just got into decided, which is part of my question, I guess. So there's decided, and then there's the the first one that you mentioned, which was like uh, there it was necessary because they were in an abusive situation. So then you have decided. So I guess that those two kind of um, overlap a little bit because you're in an abusive situation and yes. you've decided to do this because of the abusive situation. And my question is, why are people disappearing and not going to authorities instead of abandoning their current life? Well, I think in the, the one situation I can certainly speak to is that I think it's if we are going to talk about women who are escaping violent relationships, there's not always a lot of trust that they feel that they can have in law enforcement. Shiloh, what, what's your take on that? Well, yeah, I think it, it follows sort of the classic problems that domestic violence victims face. You know, they're going to go to the police and the police are going to get them a restraining order. And then what? You know, it, it's a piece of paper, um, it, especially if they have a particularly um, violent and intense partner who is very good at stalking. And, um, you know, they they're if they're at that point where they're considering running away and starting their new life, it's probably for a reason because that person is not your run of the mill um, batterer. It, they're going to stop at nothing to make sure that she does not leave alive. So I, I just don't think there's a lot of faith in the criminal justice system um, because once you leave that police station, you got to figure out where you're going to go. You know, they, they might help you call a relative or someone, but where's going to be the first place that that perpetrator is going to look? is the people that you know. So, yeah, and I guess what what is the responsibility of the investigating agency to tell the family of the missing person that they know this person went missing on purpose? Ooh, that's a really good question. I well, I mean, I I don't know. I, I can't really see that scenario where someone says, "Hey, police, um I want to make this report. I'm going to go missing on purpose, but don't tell anyone." I don't know that they would let the cops know that. I think it's one or the other. They either report the person and then you got to stick around because then the police aren't going to follow the prosecution through if they don't have a victim or they just go. You kind of choose one or the other. I don't I don't think someone would inform the police and then take off. So then I guess a follow-up is how hard does the investigating agency work on this if they believe the person um, disappeared themselves? Well, if they believe that's what happened, you need more than just a belief. Right. So is there evidence right. to back that up? 
You know, there's, yeah. it's, it would be similar to like a sexual assault. I mean, I, I handled plenty of rapes that I believed were not true and that were false accusations, but you bet I handled every investigation as if it was real and treated every victim as if it was real. Cause what if I'm wrong? And that's not for me to decide. It's for me to follow through um, with the best investigation possible. So yeah. how often do you think that that goes through law enforcement's minds that they might be faced with a situation where someone is not being forthcoming with all of the information, but Hey, what if they are, do you think that, is there like a rough percentage you could put on that? Um, <laughs> law enforcement officers are very right. skeptical by nature. So I think all the time <laughs> is my answer. Um, you're constantly weighing that, whether it's someone reporting a theft or it's someone reporting a rape or someone reporting a missing person, I think. And, and I like it. I like that only in that I want, the investigator, the patrol cop that's responding to be open-minded to every possibility in the beginning. So to kind of give equal weight to everything while taking in the information and evidence that you're getting from witnesses or from physical evidence that you're seeing. But I, I really truly believe you should be open-minded to everything at the beginning. And that means being a little skeptical to someone's story or what is their um, possible secondary gain by making this police report when it's not exactly what it sounds like on the surface. You know, my experience dovetails with what uh, Shiloh's talking about. I partner with law enforcement to investigate cases. And, you know, when I worked in the prison system and when I've worked in clinics and, and forensic settings, you always know that you have to extrapolate from the data that you're getting. You're only getting one facet of this individual's psyche of what they're sharing with you. And it w it has just astounded me. And I feel like I'm a better clinician because of this. But in working with detectives, I've now learned that the way law enforcement operates is they, they have that healthy skepticism and they're constantly taking in new information. And because every time you get more information, it can absolutely, it can give you a, you know, a 90 degree turn in your suppositions and you have to remain open to that. So it seems like there's, there are categories developing and subcategories. Yeah, really. It's, it's, uh, I, I feel like I need a graph to fully wrap my head around it. There's a lot. And what we, you know, we didn't even really get to touch on, you know, that, I mean, because, we live in Southern California and, you know, our, we are now rivaling the homeless challenges that San Francisco and other large areas are, are, are handling. Um, one of the things that we know about the homeless population in Southern California is that there's a high percentage of youth, you know, that are, you know, that come here as minors and of the people that come here as minors that are transient and homeless, the vast majority of them are LGBTQ youth that are basically thrown out of their houses by their families. And they, they have the ones that I have encountered on a regular basis have no further connection with their family and it's not safe for them to, you know, that, that actually in 2019 is still happening where these kids are abandoned by their families. And as such, they end up going missing. Now they may stay in touch with other family members by through social media, but, you 
I've, I've had the heartbreaking experience of reaching out to families and having, you know, moms and dads hang up on me. Like, yeah, we don't, we don't want to have anything to do with him. Is there a particular region that you find most of these youths are coming from? The Midwest and the South. And that's you. You didn't even hesitate there. That's, that's, that's definite. When you see something like that come in, it's most likely the Midwest and the South. Yeah, there's a lot of assumptions about living in Los Angeles um, that bring a great deal of, of homeless. There's a lot of things um, that are sort of certainly seductive about coming to the West Coast. We, we, you know, this is the center of entertainment or one of the centers of entertainment. And um, there's the assumption that the weather is going to be um, amenable, you know, all year round to living outside or living at the beach. And you know, the harsh reality is that, you know, uh, homeless youth get here and uh, unless they, they can find some kind of support system or, or take advantage of social services, they can end up uh, on the street working in the sex trade, um, falling into drug use and being even further isolated from their families of origin. But um, and we don't really have a lot of data on that in, in sort of in con- the, the crossover, the nexus to the amount of people that are reported as missing because a lot of those parents are not missing, are not reporting their kids as missing, which is tragic. Oh, why is that? Why are the parents not reporting the kids as missing? Well, if they threw them out because of their sexuality, then they're not going to report them as missing. It's fixed itself, right? Or it's broken itself. Absolutely. I mean, I was being facetious and saying, oh, yeah, that of course. Because yeah. I. It's something that's, you know, very, I, I feel very strongly about. And I see the the repercussions. You just yeah. see kids' lives. It's it's just ridiculous that it's happening at this day and age. Right. So do you think that a lot of these uh, these youths that you see and who have been uh, ostracized from their family and their community, this might be part of the whole, you know, quote unquote, missing intentionally? They're not like really seeking to go out there and and not be found ever. It's just that they can't find a place to call home. Right. So, yeah, I I think I I digressed a bit. It's not really so much the intentional missing as much as the intentional escaping from uh, a situation that is not healthy for them. I think um, the the emphasis has to be repeatedly um, (laughs) emphasized there. Yeah. So I guess... How many people who are categorized as missing persons do you think are actually intentionally missing? I know it's probably unanswerable, so I guess that's unfair of me, but I I was channeling my inner Lance. Stop it. How dare you? It's terribly unfair. (laughs) I think that even as the the data continues to come in, that's going to be the hardest thing to determine. I mean, it really is. It's going to be the hardest thing to determine because so many people disappear that are never found again. You know, we have, and especially women, women of color, indigenous women. I mean, we have, that confounds it. You know, we can make assumptions that, well, they were on that particular highway of death where everybody disappears, or did they, did they go another direction? You know, it's, that's, that's going to be a hard number to tease out until we have more data until, I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, we, you want to advocate for law enforcement agencies across the country to to really start communicating about these these things. Yeah, that would really help um, things. And I, and I know it's more complicated than just saying that. 
Um, there, it's not like there's interconnected servers um, in all cases, you know, I, I think that would really help. Right. And it may, you know, it might even be able to help. It might help to tease out the numbers if we if we look at it from a forensic standpoint and we look at just knowing if we know. And this is one of the things that, that we do have stats on is that half of the adults that go missing are highly likely to be those are it's related to mental health issues. So without differentiating the reason, all the reasons for going missing, we know that mental health concerns are on average recognized in almost, I think, half of the reports of missing people. And it's particularly common among older persons and then subcategory women, you know, women that just get overwhelmed. I mean, I'm making a generalization. I don't want to sound dismissive, but like we have an example. There was a woman, Petra Pazitska from Germany in 1984, Denise Bolzer in 1985 in New Hampshire, Brenda Heist in 2002. All three of these women just decided, you know, they couldn't take living with their families anymore. You know, they left kids, they walked away and, and became drifter. What will in further subcategories, some of them took on AKAs and then one of them, Brenda Heist walked away and just sort of had a breakdown in a park and was picked up by a drifter and disappeared for almost 20 years. What seemed consistent is that in this day and age, it is much harder to disappear intentionally than it was in the eighties. Um, so of course that's due to technology. Um, when we're talking about percentages, you to find people who are intentionally missing, you would first obviously have to have someone that reports it. And then do they have the means to hire a private investigator that can follow the technology trail, which is what trips most people up nowadays. So um, yeah, I think it's hard to put a percentage on there, but it is much more difficult to disappear and not be found today. I mean, I I, I kind of agree with that, but at the same time, I kind of don't because I feel like we're all very much more uh, well-informed. So we know how to skirt the system and perhaps disappear successfully by maybe giving some red herrings here and some false leads there. The hard part is is creating the new identity. Right. That's if You're going to disappear and then begin a new life somewhere else the difficult part is creating a new identity that seems to be the the really difficult part um like a believable one uh, well a, a believable one or one that whatever government agency or mm. um, country that you go into and start a sort of restart your life um it, yeah one that's what that's going to be um taken and um, filtered through the system. Um, private investigators say, you know, it, the surest way to be caught is to use some variation of your name or your date of birth or your social security number, switching those up. I mean, there are databases that they can just basically run variations of a person. And if someone just switches a couple of digits, they'll be found pretty quickly. So... I don't know. I think it, it sounds it sounds like a lot of effort. <laughs> yeah. But as you were saying, Lance, like, you know, we do have more data at our fingertips to maybe teach us how to do that. So could work out. It's awful. And then we also we talk about like, you know, your quality of life. I mean, what what is it? It's kind of hard, I think, for the four of us to sit and, you know, we all have, you know, we're all in relationships. We have social circles we're we're you know we have large connections that we're dealing with on a daily basis and then you think about somebody like 
like Whitey Bulger, you know, who was on the run for so long and living basically hidden in an apartment in Santa Monica with his wife for decades, you know, basically holed up in an apartment, occasionally going out to walk the dog. And, you know, what kind of life is that? I mean, what are you trading it for? I mean, in his case, he was trading it for his life because he was a you know huge criminal. But as far, unless you have like a huge amount of money that somehow is translated into cash and you can somehow get overseas to Portugal, you know, to a, where you can have a great lifestyle for very, very little money, you know, how, how do you make that happen? I've been very fascinated with this, uh, this man, Christopher Knight, who was 20 years old in 1986, and a book uh, was written about him uh, by Michael Finkel called Stranger in the Woods. And he just drove his car down a uh, back road until he couldn't drive it anymore and walked into the woods and lived there for like 27 years or something. And and that's how he lived. And then he was found and they brought him back and he you know went to the dentist and they gave him a job. And all he could say was that he just didn't want to be around people. He just he he just felt better being by himself and and he didn't like the noise of of everybody around him. And I wonder how many people are like that. Well, look, I mean, when you everything that you just mentioned points towards a diagnosis. So, I mean, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to diagnose him, but if we look at all of those particular symptoms, that sounds like somebody who's on the spectrum and can't deal, you know, like is, is, can easily get overstimulated and overwhelmed with too many people, too many noises, too many, you know, too much pressure coming from all, all sides, you know, so it would make sense in that particular person's functioning to think I need to remove myself from all of this. I don't know. I feel like that after a day of work sometimes, like I just can't stand people anymore. Oh, right. <laughs> it takes a special skill set also to live in the woods for 27 years or whatever. I mean, obviously that takes not planning. I mean, some planning, but obviously some extensive training and building those skills. Oh yeah, I forgot to mention that that this was the woods in like the middle of Maine. So he was there during wow. the harshest yeah, winters. Yeah, I mean, but no, but Shiloh, I I feel you. I uh, I feel like just uh, escaping in the middle of a work day sometimes too. Typically, it has nothing to do with me. Yeah, typically, it has to do with my coworker. But I knew that that was. Oh, <laughs> here we go. You guys really need to go to couples therapy. <laughs> Yeah, nah, we're all right, I think. I hope. <laughs> Good. It's a healthy relationship. So. <laughs> I don't know. I just uh I just made an Amazon purchase of a reciprocating saw. Uh, it's just for it's what? for some home improvements. Mm, what? Mom and dad are fighting at the dinner table again. <laughs> well, thank you both for joining us here. Um is, is there anything uh glaring that that we're missing in this conversation right now? You know, I've tied this concept to a couple of our uh, podcasts because I'm becoming more and more fascinated with the idea that, you know, as our population grows and our multicultural society continues to actually become more homogenized in certain ways, we're not really making room for people who are other. You know, when, when I grew up, you know, there were people in the neighborhood, there was, you know, the little old strange lady who lived by herself, and she was eccentric and odd. 
you know, those are the kind of things that we used to have more of a tolerance for in society. And now we avoid that. And in avoiding that, I think that we, we create more and more a sense of non-connection with people where, you know, I, I look at these examples of people that disappeared, especially the women, you know, they were overwhelmed. You know, if, if they had had a support system, if somebody had been there to recognize that they were being overwhelmed, maybe that could have made a difference. So, I mean, not to get all hippy dippy on everybody, but I think it's about a sense of uh, about lacking a sense of connection. And I think that we have to probably work harder at it now than people had to in the past because society sort of supported it. Whereas we don't now we can sort of, as we are right now, here's a perfect example that, you know, the four of us are in four different geographic locations collaborating on this. That is a great example. And we're very lucky to have you uh, both speaking about this with us. Thank you. We're happy to to talk about it. Uh, you guys have never talked about this on More Murray at all. We actually have not. We've never we've never focused a single episode on this. No. Yeah, it's just you know not necessarily everyone's favorite theory, but it is a theory. So and and I think was a strong one for some people for a while. So it's it's good. We're finally just kind of talking about and it. I, and I gotta say, you know, like listening to your podcast and all this information about Mar, like I. You know, I've listened to the whole thing a couple of times and I feel like I get more information. And I, what I got the second time was really more a sense of sadness about the effect that it's had on the family and sort of the meta narrative of examining it after the fact and how that affects the family. But, you know, in in regard to what you just said, I mean, I, I kind of hope she did walk away. I hope that that's the best, you know, that's the best case scenario. Definitely. You know, that she's still alive somewhere and she's created another life that's working for her because the alternative is not great. I, I While I agree with that, the alternative is not great. I think no matter what the alternative is, by talking about this and by saying that this situation happens and there are so many contributing factors currently and there are contributing factors that we were raised with uh, in the past, I think that should open up a dialogue for more uh, analysis on on why people would do this, even if even if uh, it's it, 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 this isn't the solution in Mora's case. You know, at least it's brought that to the forefront. Before we go, what is coming up next or soon on L.A. Not So Confidential? Ooh, we have a really good episode for you this sometime this week. Um, we are going to be talking about killer nurses. Something terrifying. <laughs> there are way, Annie Wilkes? way more out there than you think. Um, yeah, we will be talking about Annie for sure. When a person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, 
He was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.